0: Welcome to Enroute, the podcast where we talk about life along the way. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Have you subscribed to the show yet? If you have, thanks. If you haven't, then what are you waiting for? Subscribe now. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or via RSS. When you do that, you'll never miss a show. And don't just listen to this show. Please consider leaving a review or rating on whatever platform you listen to, on the, to, to this podcast. When you do that, you make it a whole lot easier for other people to find this show. Also, Enroute has a YouTube channel. You can check out our show notes to find the link and then subscribe. You'll hear me sharing this story a little bit later in the podcast, but I wanted to share it now. In the summer of 1988, I went with my parents to uh, visit Washington, D.C., and we went to Arlington National Cemetery, and while there, I really learned about the significance of Arlington. I had not known that it was once the, the estate of one Robert E. Lee. We visited Lee's house, and the docent reminded us that it was here that Lee decided to fight for the Confederacy. Now, one of the things that sometimes people don't know is that Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln asked Robert E. Lee if he would lead the Union Army. And he kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and finally Lee decided he wanted to fight for his home state of Virginia. And so he made that decision. The docent said that, And probably this was not true, but looking at his house, he could look out from his porch, and he knew that once he left Arlington, he would never see it again. And that was true. The land was seized by the government, and of course, now it is our National Cemetery. Now, even though I'm African American, and I have ancestors that were enslaved, There's a part of me that feels a sense of sadness about this man giving up his home. Now, on the other hand, of course, he was fighting for a cause that was evil. So, you know, losing his home was sad, but it wasn't that sad. But that's the thing about the Civil War. It it brings up, in some ways, a lot of mixed emotions and mixed feelings about it. Because it is, in some ways, so mixed up in a way of of different things and people. It is a pivotal event in the history of the United States. That four-year period between 1861 and 1865 is one that I think has defined our nation. It's a story of a nation that is sundered. It's a story of justice for African-Americans. And it's a story about the eventual reconciliation of the American nation. I spoke with Chris Makowski. He is uh, the editor of the Emerging Civil War blog. And the blog is made up of a number of historians, pro- both professional and, and amateur, that come together to talk about their different their views on the Civil War. And lifting up probably... Pieces of history that many of us may not know, and sometimes trying to relate that to today. During our conversation, we talk about Chris being a um, fanboy of Stonewall Jackson. We also talk about his, uh, a very poignant blog post that he wrote about his experience and observations um, on race. Uh, during a visit to Richmond and a visit to Monument Avenue shortly after the murder of George Floyd. We also talk about how to handle Confederate monuments and also how African American historians remind him that the Civil War is more than about battles. It's also about the emancipation of a people. So let's listen in to my conversation with Chris Mikowski. thank you for joining me on this um, interview. I'm looking forward to it. This is um, this aspect of history has always been something I've been interested in, so thank you for taking the time.
1: It's a privilege to be here, Dennis. Thanks so much for asking. I appreciate it.
0: Well, I think the first question I have is that you're a professor in journalism and communications, so how did that end up in an interest in the Civil War?
1: Uh, it's kind of a long, convoluted Uh, answer. But you know, what I tell my students is the best part about being a writer or going into journalism is that you can indulge your curiosity and write about whatever you happen to be interested in. So that's kind of how things uh, you know evolved from there and that I became interested in the civil war I had an opportunity to write about it and that's how my two interests intersect um, but really I give all the credit or the blame if you want to call it that <laughs> to uh, my daughter Stephanie um, Stephanie's 27 now but when she was four years old uh, we took a day trip out to the battlefield at Manassas Virginia outside of DC wow. okay and and uh, She got out of the car and she fell in love with this giant statue of Stonewall Jackson that is at Manassas. And for folks who aren't familiar with it, it looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger on a Budweiser Um, (laughs) Clydesdale, which is not what Jackson (laughs) looked like at all. But it it captured her imagination as a four-year-old. She's like, oh, wow, this is so cool. And then he had a cool nickname, Stonewall Jackson. Oh my gosh. So so she became a Stonewall Jackson groupie, long story short. And uh, I didn't have a particular interest in the Civil War, But I had to start learning about it so that she could, so I could answer her questions. And Mm. we started to go to other sites where Stonewall Jackson had been. And, um, you know, if it was a Civil War site and there was no Stonewall Jackson, uh, you know, like the war ends for her May 10th, 1863 when Stonewall (laughs) died. Yeah. But what I discovered, and and you know, and this kind of speaks to that journalism background, is you know, as a four year old, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and she wants to know those sorts of questions, and those are hard questions to answer between you and me, and then to try to explain that to a four-year-old. So to me, I just became fascinated in this story because it's so compelling. It's full of human interests. There are complicated questions that have strong resonances to us today. And so it's a topic that I like to keep going back to um, because I think there's so much to explore.
0: And what's the story behind um, the Emerging Civil War blog? I've been following it maybe for about a year, year and a half. It's it's really fascinating to have all of these people from different walks of life kind of talking about the war. Where did it come from?
1: Uh, and uh, there's a Stonewall Jackson connection there too. Uh, by that point, I had been um, uh, volunteering for Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park uh, in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I had many friends on the staff there. Um, I worked there as a seasonal for summer, uh, and a couple of us were sitting on the porch of the caretaker's cottage down at the stonewall jackson death site uh because it was park housing and we're sitting around and just like shooting the breeze i was like we should start up a blog you know And, and like instead of just one or two of us though it should be like let's get a bunch of people together who's uh, work we really respect, who, who have good ideas, who are good storytellers, and let's like have this community of bloggers that blog about the Civil War. And in, in some ways, like you know, digital media has democratized uh, music and art and publishing, and it has democratized history. And so it was a way for us to use digital history as a platform to provide a venue for emerging voices in the field to get their first chance of publication and kind
0: of been talking about when you all kind of started the blog and how do you think talking about the war has changed from when you started to now
1: yeah um and and i think my own personal journey has has followed a very similar arc in that um you know the bread and butter for the blog is mud and blood you know people want to talk about battles um people come to battlefields because they want to you know learn about battles and what you know and and those sorts of things um so it was very military history oriented and um you know talking to a lot of people they get interested in the civil war because they've gone to a battlefield right Mm -hmm. but then once you start unpacking some of those questions i alluded to earlier and you start to realize like there's more um, underneath this and, and very complicated questions and the resonances today, um, it, it's, it, I think, really worth exploring. But um, you know people aren't necessarily ready to plunge into that on their first day. Like they come to the battlefield because they want to be entertained. It's a form of entertainment or they're reading the Civil War because they want to be uh, entertained in some fashion. So you sort of have to meet them where they're at mm-hmm. and then kind of move them towards some of these more complicated things to think about. Uh, and that can be a lot more challenging. Than, than people realize, but uh, you know, so you know, I like to, Stonewall Jackson. Ooh. Well, then when I started to really understand the nuances of the Confederacy, it's like, uh, well, you know, um, and and those are questions and conversations that I think we should all be having. Um, some people don't want to have those conversations. It's like, no, give me my Stonewall Jackson, and I'm going to just talk about what an awesome dude he was, and and there are things we can benefit from, from talking about them, things we can learn as, as we can from any human being. Um, but like that also means that there are some downsides we also need to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. you
0: know? Well, how do you balance that? I mean, I think it's, a, it's fascinating to learn about the history of the Civil War. And, and I've always thought that there are these two different viewpoints that are both valid. And I think they kind of come up one in different periods more than others. And one is to kind of talk about the reconciliation or what would have been broken, that a lot of the soldiers that were fighting on opposite sides were at one point in the same army. Army. They may have fought in the Mexican-American War or something to that extent. Um, but then on the other side of that, of course, is the issue concerning race and, uh, and slavery. And so you have these two kind of things where you're talking about and it, it's hard to put them together, but it almost seems like you have to balance or at least try to balance them. And I'm, I'm just wondering if that's something that you kind of deal with.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's really the two two sides of the same coin. You know, you can't talk about heritage without talking about racism. You can't talk about racism without talking about heritage. Um, and honestly, I don't think we as a country can have enough conversations about Race and slavery, uh, and and some people will hear that and, and immediately be like, "Oh, he's so woke." I'm not going to listen to whatever. But it's like, it's it, that, that's not it at all. You know, like I, I really think that um, you know these are conversations that date back to the founding of the republic, where you know the founders are sitting together saying, like, "Okay, what do we do about the slavery thing? Well, if we deal with that, we're not going to have a country. So let's have a country kick this can down the road." And we're still kicking that can and at some point we've got to stop and and really have that conversation I think um and uh you know and I'm sympathetic in a way to people who talk about their confederate heritage um I liken it to my grandfather uh, both of my grandfathers uh, they served in world war ii and i'm very proud of their service i mean that generation literally saved the world you know right Mm -hmm. Um, i'm real proud of that so i can see why someone would be proud of their great 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 grandfather's service and answering the call to duty as they understood it at the time and that's the key thing (laughs) their duty as they understood it at the time not as we understand it today so i get that and then i think where it gets really cloudy is when we do start to then Apply today's value system on their duty, and you know then that that becomes really complicated.
0: One of the things that I remember, um, my first trip to D.C. was in um, college. I think it was uh, between my freshman and sophomore years, and I went with my parents, and we went to Arlington Cemetery, and it was there that I actually learned what Arlington Cemetery was about. That 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 was Robert E. Lee's one of his places it was um, and I think I remember from the the docent that was there she talked about the fact of him making that decision after um, Lincoln had asked if he would lead um, the army of the union army mm-hmm. of what decision he was going to make and when he made his decision and who knows if this is true or not but it was kind of kind of epic in the way that it was that he looked over the land knowing that he was not going to see it again, um, which was true. And there was a humanity in that, that I understood. And you could feel a twinge of sadness about that. And you could also know he was fighting for a cause that wasn't that great and obviously affected my ancestors. And so it was this, this balance that was just interesting to kind of talk about that it wasn't it wasn't one or the other it was both and i think i don't know if that is it makes the issue not as as clear-cut as i think sometimes we want
1: it to be Mm -hmm. and you know and I'm saying this as a journalism professor, I don't think that the media necessarily helps clarify that conversation because, you know, everyone's looking for the clickbait. Everyone's looking for those, uh, you know, 140 characters that grab somebody's eyes. And so, you know, this, um, this media environment that creates this sense of, of um, exaggeration and, um, uh, you know, extremism, um, yeah, that does not help the conversation at all you know so there's a hysteria about it I think is a yeah
0: yeah Yeah, and unfortunately I think our media today is not as good at trying to deal with nuance as I think in some ways is needed Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and, and honestly though I I do think there are a lot of media that try Mm -hmm. but Um, You know, we get the media we deserve or we get the media we ask for. I mean, the media, you know, by and large is a commercial entity and they're looking where the dollar signs are. And so we as media consumers have to be more responsible about seeking that stuff out if we're really earnest about it. Um, Because the media is just giving us what we want, what we're willing to pay for.
0: So one of the things I've picked up from the blog is that you Still have a bit, kind of a, somewhat of a, of a fanboy towards Stonewall Jackson, um, and I've always found it interesting. Some of the characters, especially on the Confederate side, whether it's um, Jackson or Robert E. Lee, um, are looked at very differently than, say, though there are some that would not say this, but you know Jefferson Davis that had a you know very different um, demeanor and. I don't know if he had as as much of a fan base, but how do you kind of reconcile like Lee and Jackson with the cause that they were fighting? Because I think today people would, a lot of people, or at least what we would hear in the media is simply that either they were traitors or white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And knowing the history, I know that the history is not as simple as that, but how do you kind of deal with that?
1: Yeah, that's a kind of a million dollar question, Dennis. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> and my, you know, maybe this is a, a cop out, but what I try to do is I try to just keep asking the questions. Um, and be honest about the fact that I don't have answers, you know, yes, I'm a Stonewall Jackson fanboy. No, he is nobody. I would want to hang out with, you know, and have a beer with or anything, you know, not to drink beer. Um, You know, so there are some, some things about the guy I really admire, but also some things I have questions about He's fascinating. And so, you know, it's in some ways like the car accident where you can't not look as you're driving by Um, as horrific as it is, you got to keep, you know, um, some of it is like that. I think uh, Um, where we get into problems is that people who are uh, devoted to a particular character or a particular ideology, and they don't want to ask questions about it, you know, and and they don't want to admit that there might be downsides. They don't want to look at the dirty underbelly. Um, You know, if we're going to look at something, let's look at the whole thing and let's talk about it and see what we can learn pro and con. But there are a lot of people who just want to talk about the right history, the correct history, the proper history. And, you know, and really what they're talking about is trying to defend a particular memory, not actual history. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we like to remember our heroes certain ways and people don't like those images threatened or questioned. And I think that that becomes uh, problematic.
0: Yeah, I think there was uh, the most interesting or recent um, Thing This was actually dealing with Stonewall Jackson was his um, statue, I think at VMI. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was interesting how they handled the issue. And um, I believe at some point it's going to be, well, it has been moved from the, from the premises, but it's going to be put someplace else in the town. Um, Which I mean, I responded to that thinking, I think that that was proper way of handling it the response was that i got was just shocking i was just like okay i think some of you are a little bit this is whoa <laughs> i i just was kind of shocked by it
1: yeah, yeah people have very strong feelings about that stuff so they're relocating the statue to the new market battlefield okay um, and and so it'll be on state property but it'll be on a battlefield contextualized a little differently um Um, So, you know, but, but people like say, well, gosh, he was never there. He shouldn't, you know, he shouldn't be at that battlefield. He was never there. You know, he marched by kind of thing. But, you know, as you said, like, you know, trying to find a compromise or trying to find some suitable answer um for me a big thing is is just process i hate the idea that mobs make decisions about those sorts of things you know uh and and you see that everywhere from on twitter uh to you know literally on the streets and and mob rule is not what democracy is all about that said like there are mechanisms for those people to have their voices heard. And if there aren't mechanisms, there should be mechanisms put in place. And people should have a say, there should be a process in place. And then after deliberation, not after high emotions, um, if people want to make a decision um, based on process, I think that's great. You know, And just as the city of Richmond once upon a time had it in its control to decide to put monuments up, the city of Richmond today has it in its control to decide whether to keep those monuments up or whether to take them down.
0: One of the the blog posts I thought that was the most poignant was the one that you wrote um, shortly after George Floyd's um, killing. Mm-hmm. And you drove down to Richmond um, and kind of was taking in all that was happening, um, the graffiti painting and all that. Um, would you mind kind of sharing what was going through your mind at all this that you know some of the how the statues were all the kind of the mixture of having the statues on that row in Richmond how people were responding to it especially in the aftermath of when it
1: happened um, just to kind of share that with with a wider audience sure Um, and I think that goes back to you know, my former life as a journalist, where I I feel the need to bear witness on some level. And so, you know, we had had these uh, incredible protests, national news happening, you know, kind of in my backyard. So I wanted to go down and just see it and bear witness and, and, you know, be a witness to history. Um, And I took my two boys with me, my oldest son, Jackson is 21. And my youngest son, Maxwell was three. And um, we just walked up and down uh, Monument Avenue to kind of see what there was to see. And the thing that strikes me the most you know aside from just the sheer amount of graffiti but like what that graffiti represented and it was interesting the, the feedback i got from the pictures i posted some people just saw vandalism and you know they were just upset by the vandalism um and other people saw you know rage and frustration and anger and high emotions and the only way they had to to vent that was through a spray paint can, you know, and I, and being in person, you know, honestly, I, I was not in favor of vandalism, but boy, I could pick up that, that angst and anger and frustration just coming off of the spray painted surfaces. And I, I just felt really bad for people who, um, just you know, having to deal with that kind of of, of upset every day, you know, uh, it really resonated with me and uh, made, made a, a strong impression on me. Um, so I'm you know, you know, while I would certainly never condone public violence and vandalism, like I was empathetic to the this primal scream that some of these protesters were were finally letting loose, uh, and you know, it's like there's a problem. We need to figure out what, what that you know, what a solution is. We need to talk through this and figure something out because, uh, I don't think anybody's happy about what's going on right now. You know, um, it was, it was a moving experience. Yeah.
0: And I live in Minneapolis. So that's, um, was at the epicenter of all of that. And I totally can understand, um, the rage and, um, both from a kind of historical standpoint here in Minnesota and probably from a personal standpoint, though I also would not condone that. Um, but and it's, yeah. and
1: it's a tough thing, like, you know, being a middle-aged white guy uh, who will soon be like an old dead white male, you know? Um, mm-hmm. uh, like, they're just experiences that I have never had or can never have. And so I could either try to be empathetic where I can be like, well, you know, that's not my problem, you know, and I, and, and, you know, I think as a storyteller, I really want to help people try to, uh, you know, to help understand a little bit more, even though we can't fully understand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's, you know, let's try to be good to each other. You know? yeah. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, I think maybe that's where it comes down to. I like, yeah, maybe we should just try to be better to each other overall.
0: So what do you think is the, the The story of the Civil War, how does that relate to our modern day? Um, A lot of people would say that that's 150 years ago, that was history. Um, But a lot of, I think, a lot more people today see connections between what happened then and and to our modern day. How would you
1: come down on that? Yeah. And to anybody who says it was 150 years ago, well, I'd first tell them it's now 160 years ago. Time continues to march on, right? Um, and and it's not a remote historical event, as as headlines keep proving. You know, like people wouldn't have these strong emotional responses to these stories if there wasn't something deeply resonant about that underlying history, that underlying connection. Um, understanding the history isn't going to solve today's problems, but I think it helps give us uh, context for framing the discussion helps us figure out what the common vocabulary is for talking with each other, helps us understand, um, you know, why one side is upset, why the other side is upset that there are more than just those two sides, you know? So like it, it just, I think deepens our understanding so that we're better prepared for conversations. Um, but uh, you know, Unfortunately, that 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 racial divide that has existed since the you know, the colonies were established, um, that continues to happen and continues to get reinvented as it did with the founding, as it did with the war, as it did with Reconstruction, as it did with civil rights. Um, so, you know, what's that next step, and can we make that next step better, or can we make that step something that's farther apart? Um, you know, and not to sound like I'm waxing poetical or being sentimental, but like once upon a time, you and I. As, as two guys could not have this conversation because their skin color is different, mm-hmm. you know? Definitely, And, you know, and I honestly, I just don't know what it's like to fear for my life that if I say the wrong thing, someone's going to string me from a tree. Mm-hmm. I have never had to worry about that. And, you know, people uh, of other skin colors have had to, and that's just a fact of life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you know, progress happens. We're having this conversation there's a lot more, progress has to happen
0: so going back to um stonewall jackson i'm just kind of curious what is it about him that fascinates you
1: yeah um <laughs> uh, i'm actually finally trying to write a book that uh, uh, answers that question or gets, mm-hmm. gets some answers um for, for, i think most of all like he's a he sees the world in black and white in in ways that few other people have ever read about or met see the world you know like he, he was a letter of the law kind of guy and you know like if you disobeyed his orders you got put under arrest and you know like his boss once said i need to see you in my office and so he's waiting in the, the waiting room the boss forgets he's out there leaves for the night and jackson sits in the outer office all night long because that's what he was told to do like they're just like wow i don't know i can't wrap my deeply religious guy um deeply devoted father. He's got some, some, you know, he's just, uh, uh, you know, crazy about his wife, um, loves his daughter, but, but he's, you know, he lost two children, and he was, you know, he was a Presbyterian, but he's really an old-fashioned Calvinist, and he believed that God was like an Old Testament jealous God, and that Jackson loved his first two kids so much and God got jealous and took them. So like when he finally had his third child, he wouldn't tell anybody because he was afraid like God would get angry. So there's just all these components to his character that um, make him, uh, I think, endlessly fascinating. So it's, uh, and, and, you know, there's that old trope for the lost cause about the benevolent slave owner and how he took care of, 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 of his slaves. And, and with Jackson, there was actually some truth to that. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to talk about it because then people think you're either buying into the lost cause mythology. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like he taught a Sunday school for black people in Lexington slave uh, enslaved people and free people. And, and they were so grateful they founded a church down outside of Roanoke and put up a big glass, stained glass window in honor of them. Like that was a sincere effort and gesture on their part. So it's just like, and that's hard to explore without sounding lost causes. Right? So there's just, there's so many of these weird, weird layers to the guy that, uh, um, I don't know. I, I'll be fascinated with him to, to, you know, uh, I should say I really like Ulysses S. Grant and George Meade too. So.
0: <laughs> well, I'm still kind of learning a little bit more about um, Grant and, but he was always an interesting character because putting him up against Lee, um, you would think Grant, there's no way he should be leading an army um, just because of his prior history. But yet he was able to, and I think he became just, he became the symbol uh, of the Union forces, Um, and of course, I think that propelled him to the White House. Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, he becomes like the symbol of the self-made man, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, where he comes from pretty humble beginnings and works his way up, literally, to to the White House uh, through, you know, determination and resolve and the willingness to fail and humility and you know all those sorts of things that we really love as americans so i think
0: maybe one of the most obvious questions to ask is how do we handle monuments Mm -hmm. um obviously that is still an issue um, because there are confederate monuments throughout um the south how do we handle that issue um do we just simply do we actually do a lot of kind of talking about it and how do we handle these and do we you know move statues do we just take them down mm-hmm. what how do we really begin to kind of talk about this which is a, a fraught issue
1: sure sure and i see um kind of like two levels to the conversation um And the first is, you know, process. Going back to what I said earlier, process, process, process. And you know, at the end of the day, if the process yields a decision, this is a democracy. Majority rules. You know, process should protect the rights of the minority. But you know, but I don't think that that means we should then go take all these things and throw them into the trash heap because they are learning tools. They do capture people's imagination. I mean, that's how my daughter got interested in all of this, right? Um, So there, there are useful components to them. And then, as I said, that, that second component is like they are also works of art. And as a, uh, a journalism professor, um, a big, strong advocate of the First Amendment, freedom of, of expression. Um, and so this idea of artistic expression just, I think, needs to be honored in some way, although some of these statues are pretty ugly to look at. <laughs> so so I think, yeah, again, having a process that that leads to some conclusion that Um, You know, maybe not everybody gets everything they want, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's an outcome that that happened because of a legitimate process. Um, And I think that's what happens, you know, and then put them someplace where they can still be contextualized. They can still be used as learning tools. They can still make people go, wow. um, If that's appropriate, um, you know, and uh, you know, put our history in a context that allows us to uh, use it constructively. Mm -hmm. rather than than divisively.
0: How do you think we are teaching the Civil War? Um, I think there's been a lot of people have said years ago that it hasn't been taught well, and depending on where you lived, it might have been probably more leading towards lost cause um, kind of philosophy than it was kind of just teaching the war. Um, how do you think that we as a nation are handling this this period of our nation?
1: Uh, I think it's troublesome in a couple ways. Uh, first, just because it varies from state to state. And so um, places in the South, I'm told, do teach it differently than places at the North. Um, I do a lot of uh, work with the American Battlefield Trust with their annual teacher institute. So I have a chance to talk to a lot of middle school and high school teachers who are teaching the Civil War. So this is kind of where this is coming from. And, um, you know, just depending on what the state requirements are, but there are still states that talk about, you know, the civil wars being about states' rights, which is balderdash. Um, <laughs> states' rights to what? Own slaves. You know, that's what, you know, and, and I don't say that to be provocative. Go and look at the the primary sources, like the the ordinances of, of secession. Like they, they just lay this out pretty baldly. So um, I'm not missing interpreting history as much as history has been misinterpreted. Um, so, you know, that that state-by-state state thing is pretty problematic. And then just, you know, this modern movement toward assessment. And so teachers, a lot of times, feel like they're having to teach to a test. So there's not a lot of time to stop and really delve into something that is complicated and has lots of nuance, you know. Like, what's the fact that's going to show up on a test? you got to kind of teach that. So I think these are two factors that really complicate our common understanding of what the war was really about and that you know unfortunately just makes it harder for conversations about it Mm -hmm. now there are people if i say that the war was about slavery i know people will punch me in the nose you know like it is not about slavery it's like yes yes it is (laughs) you know there are all sorts of other reasons that tie into it, but yes it was all they all come back to slavery you know
0: i just always find that interesting when people say it's not about slavery it's like um I, I, I think it was.
1: <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think that was the main point of the, the, the entire war. So and Lincoln talks about preserving the union. Exactly, well, you, you yeah. wouldn't have to do that if the South didn't leave yeah. or slavery. You know. <laughs> so,
0: well, one other question that um, that I have is, and I just was finishing a history podcast I listened to um, at the um, surrender at Appomattox, mm-hmm. and. What's fascinating about that is really the humanity that was shown, um, especially from the Union side towards the Confederacy. Um, The terms of surrender were incredibly generous. I think General Lee was quite surprised Mm -hmm. about that. Um, How the soldiers were treated as they gave up their guns was, was seen to be very humane. What do you think that that lesson te- has to teach us today as uh, you see these two opposing forces who definitely fought each other, but when it was all done, they treated each other as brothers?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, Lincoln made it pretty clear that, you know, if it was up to him, he'd let them up easy, he said to the Confederates, you know, because, you know, give them plows, get them back into their fields, Give me something constructive to do, and let's get this behind us as quickly as possible. And and that set a very important tone for Grant and Sherman as Sherman negotiates surrender terms um, with Johnston uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, or the next week. Um, and, and I'll I'm going to wax philosophical here for a second, but you know that notion of being kind to each other, you know, kind of doesn't hurt. It doesn't cost a thing, right? And. Uh, you know, there are a lot of instances where something happens. And so, you know, one army or the other is going to say, well, we're going to get retribution and we're going to pay him back 10 times and like just make him too afraid to do something again. Um, and, and that, that retrib- uh, retributive attitude um, didn't fix anything. It just made... People more angry, more bitter, and okay. Maybe I'm not going to act out right now, but you can bet. You know, your time's coming. Your payback's coming. So like that that hard retribution, and that's why reconciliation and reconstruction failed. Um, it, it, that hard that hard attitude doesn't solve problems. You know, it's when you show some humility, you show some kindness, you extend a hand, and yeah, there are times your hand gets bit, your hand gets slapped. But particularly when you're the winner, you can afford to be magnanimous and that can go a long way toward um, finding solutions. Yeah.
0: And related to that, and you kind of brought it up briefly, why do you think that reconstruction didn't turn out as well as maybe hoped? Um, there are lots of people now, There, I've, I've even read a few that have thought, well, maybe we should have taken people's land or we should have been under that the south should have been under military occupation for decades Mm -hmm. why did it not turn out well for the nation and especially for african americans
1: yeah i I think a few reasons first um the radical republicans were very vengeful in their policies Uh, andrew johnson was not politically in sync with abraham lincoln so like as a political error. That was a terrible idea, (laughs) as it turned out. Um, Lincoln really hadn't laid forward uh, a concrete plan for how he saw things unfolding. So, you know, when Oliver Otis Howard takes over as as, uh, director of the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, he doesn't really know what to do or, or how to execute things. And Johnson gives him weird orders. And, you know, so like, so you know, just saying you're free. Okay, that's awesome. Now what? And there was no answer to that. Now what? So, you know, as, as the country like sort of fumbles through this, now what, they just, they lose interest. Like Westward expansion is awesome and sexy and attention grabbing and America, even then didn't have a very long attention span. And so uh, reconciliation, I mean, uh, you know, um, reconstruction collapses because the North doesn't have the will to see it through. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, everything goes back to the way it used to be you know the, the old racial hierarchies um so and and I think in any sort of conflict like that you, you have to understand like what's at stake for people and in some in some way you have to address the concerns of the white people in the south because as they demonstrated through passive and aggressive resistance um you know they, they feel threatened. And so like, what are you gonna to do to help them notch down their level of threat? And then what are you gonna do with all of the, the now free uh, former slaves? You know, like we need to help you out too, you know? So like, and those are just things that never got addressed. So
0: what have you learned from um, African-American historians, uh, civil war historians, mm-hmm. because I'm going you know, this is a very diverse field and in kind of coming into conversation, what have you learned from them? What are things that you may have not thought about before that they've brought up and um, how has that kind of influenced how you teach and talk about the war?
1: Sure, and it's uh, part of it is just it, it, um, it's easier to talk about these things because I've been able to have conversations with black historians in particular Mm-hmm. Um, you know because some some people are just different. like I can't talk about that because I don't know how to have those conversations or people will accuse me of this or that you know there's there's a degree of fear in having conversations about race um, so I'll give a lot of credit to my friend Stuart Henderson and my friend Emmanuel Dabney um, Stuart's a, a historian here at Fredericksburg Emmanuel's down at, at Petersburg and both of them um, like to talk about soldier experiences um, you know they like to talk about what it was like to be enslaved and then go and fight for your freedom and, and, and you know in a list. And, and so those are the sorts of things that, that you know, um, just understanding how those voices fit into the larger story of the war. Um, I had a, a former colleague uh, who was a Black woman, just a couple years younger than I am, and, and mm-hmm. we were talking once, and she said, the Civil War, that's white people's history. And, uh, and her area of interest is criminal justice and criminal justice reform and, and mass incarceration. And so that answer surprised me quite a bit, because we can make some pretty direct links from, <laughs> from yeah to yeah. that, right? A tiny
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I said, well, tell me about that. That's a fascinating answer. And, you know, because most of Civil War history is told as battles and leaders and you know, white guys on horses giving orders. Um, you know, Maybe we'll mention the Emancipation Proclamation, but we're probably going to talk about the Gettysburg Address instead. You know, and so like, that is what she saw Civil War history as being. And in talking with guys like Stuart and with Emmanuel and, and with other voices, uh, you know, Brian Cheeseborough does a lot of stuff um, uh, online. Um, you know, just like, this is very much history for black people you know, it, it was a huge watershed moment to finally become free. And um, a lot of people, black and white, don't appreciate that, or they take that for granted. Um, and I say that not to be demeaning, just most Americans today don't take a lot of that, I mean, take a lot of that stuff for granted, period. Right? Um, huge, huge moment. And so, like, we should all be focused in on that like why this is important that's why I actually thought the Juneteenth holiday is like such a cool idea because Mm -hmm. like now let's let's really talk about what this moment really is and what this idea of freedom really is and what it means you know
0: yeah I I was kind of wondering because I think with Juneteenth that might actually get people to start thinking about the Civil War in ways that they haven't thought about it before Um, and in some ways brings that history right up front
1: Mm -hmm. and i like the idea that you know it's a holiday that came from uh celebrations from formerly enslaved people you know and and i've had people say like well they should they should actually put the holiday on the day that the 13th amendment was ratified and it's like we celebrate the 4th of july that's not a literal day either you know if we're really going to be honest then it should be the ratification of the constitution you know it's it's like it's the spirit it's the symbolic Mm -hmm. metaphoric (laughs) power of it i think uh is wonderful
0: well thank you this has really been an enlightening conversation um as i've said before this is kind of one of the parts of history that i'm really fascinated about
1: let me ask you uh, yeah how did you get fascinated in
0: you know it was i think i go back to eighth grade um or no seventh grade and i was taught about the the history and we went through all of the kind of the major battles so i was fascinated about hearing about um bull run um or antietam or sharpsburg and all that and kind of the differences and the uh, you know that the north was far more industrialized than the south they had more population than the south all of that kind of just fascinated me and and then of course how that related to me personally, you know, as an African American, it just seemed like that was such a pivotal part of American history that we would not be the nation that we are now if it wasn't because of the Civil War. Um, And so that has, has always been something that has stayed with me, you know, nearly 40 years, is that this interest in the war and and wanting to learn more about it um, and you know even to this day I still want to learn more because there's just lots more to learn um, you know this fall I'm going to a wedding of my cousin that happens to be in Richmond okay. um, so I'm probably going to be looking <laughs> at different things and I actually last night I thought hmm Appomattox is like 90 miles west maybe we can drive that way um, just because it, it's just, it, I don't know, it just fascinates me and I think it, it's such a, a foundational to our, our nation, even, even in some ways more so than the revolution, even though that's an important part of, our, of, of American history. This is the Civil War is kind of where we had to, we were trying to actually live up to those words that were written 90 years before. Yeah. and so yeah that's kind of where my my love of the civil war comes from
1: yeah yeah and and i don't think you and i have solved a single problem tonight nope but what a great conversation you know and i think if more people had these sorts of conversation we would all be better off you
0: know? yeah you don't have to solve everything i i think it's just good to sometimes hear the stories and hear where people are coming from and yeah. that's that's what matters yeah,
1: yeah so well it's been a privilege to chat with you dennis I, i'm really grateful for the chance to to talk.
0: Well, thank you, and you as well. And hopefully, we will talk again sometime.
1: It would be my privilege. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Well, take care. Have a good evening.
1: Thanks, you two guys. All right.
0: I hope to have him back in the near future. It was a fascinating conversation, and um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this um, part of American history. Now, a few years ago, of course, the New York Times launched uh, its 1619 Project, and the creators behind that project believed and saw America's founding really not in 1776, but in 1619, which is the year that the first enslaved Africans come to Virginia. Now, of course, there are others that believe that the year that we need to focus on, the founding, is, is of course, the founding of 1776, when America declared its independence from Great Britain. For me, I, I want to enter a third year. I think the year really of America's founding, or at least its refounding, is 1865. Of course, that's the year that marks the end of the Civil War, and it finally ends the decades long argument about the role of slavery in the Republic. That's also the year when enslaved blacks in South Texas finally hear the good news of the Emancipation Proclamation in June of 1865. And we now celebrate this tale of freedom through our, nationally, our newly minted national holiday called Juneteenth. I think that 1865 is the year that America started living up to the words written in 1776. That doesn't mean that they got it right or got it perfect. There was still lots and lots of work to be done. But I think that the first steps to really living up to the words written in the Declaration of Independence started with this first step in that very important year of 1865. Well, I want to thank you for listening, and I also want to say thank you for your support. There are lots of podcasts out there, and lots of podcasts that are similar to this one, And I'm thankful that you decide to listen. I hope that you make sure to visit our website, enroutepodcast.org. While you're there, you can sign up to be on the mailing list of the newsletter, uh, Letters of of Transit. You can listen to past episodes, and you can also read some articles that I've written. Uh, While you're on the website, you can also make a donation to support this podcast. That's it for this episode of Enroute. Notes on Religion, Politics, and Culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed.